Welcome to Business Unmuted, sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb. I've owned Recognition PR for 35 years. We've got 75 successful private sector clients across the UK, and we're at the front line of the business community and perfectly placed to discuss the economic climate. In the studio, we've got Fraser Brown, Managing Director of Motivise, which offers a com comprehensive range of services to the automotive dealers of the UK. Down the line, we have Skylar McKeith, uh, who's Head of Immigration at Mackerel Solicitors. She's an experienced uh, corporate and business immigration lawyer and a frequent commentator on news shows like GB News. And we also have Fahin Khan, Senior Economist at Make UK, which gives a voice to the manufacturing and engineering sectors across the UK. Let's start, though, with Fahin. Fahin, you're an economist, and my goodness, there's been some recent news in the economy. It appears that cheerful people like me, who were saying a few weeks ago that it isn't going to be all that bad, are getting vindicated. What do you think about the economy and the data that's been released this week? Maybe put it in context for us. Well, from my perspective, particularly in the manufacturing industry, um, after experiencing a pretty turbulent time since the, like, I could say maybe since 2018, where we have a very up and down uh, situation, um, manufacturing after experiencing a very, very strong 2021 and also a pretty strong 2022 uh, for the first half of last year, have been indicating that the um, activity has been slowing down, that the inflation that we've been seeing across the economy has started to st impact consumers' pockets and businesses are actually starting to see that their orders are falling. Our expectations from a kind of an economic point of view is that we do think the manufacturing sector's um, value-added output is probably going to decline in 2023 by around 3.5%. Um, the UK economy, however, is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, it's actually become very difficult uh, to predict what's going to happen. We narrowly avoided a recession, I think, um, for towards the end of last year, when the, initially we predicted that we would have two quarters of decline in output. Um, the expectation at the moment is that maybe we will still get into a recession. Um, it might be a pretty weak one, at least much in relative terms compared to the uh, global financial crisis in 08, 09. Um, but then things are also equally, there is a possibility that things can turn for the for the better and actually come out stronger as well. So there is a possibility of that happening. But our current expectation is that we're probably going to head for a very weak um, and mild recession for most of this year before seeing some growth in 2024. Now, Fain, I respect your opinions and we all have our opinions. Yours are probably more uh, highly educated than mine. So mine's a little bit more based on the clients that I speak to at the front line of my business. But... In January, based on the clients I'm talking to in the north of England on all sorts of different areas, I was saying that it was unlikely that we were going to go into recession. Lo and behold, we didn't. I felt, because I wrote my own personal income tax uh, checkout in January and it was much bigger than I'd expected, that maybe the government would have a surplus this month. But everyone said they wouldn't, and they did have a surplus this month. And when you look at forecasters, the the media pays a lot of attention to forecasters, whether it be the IMF or or the OBI, or OBR rather, and they have got it wrong, haven't they? 
Yeah, I think particularly over the last few years, I think pretty much every major forecast that has been made about the economy has, um, in hindsight, proven to be wrong. But I think that is more testament to the uncertain environment that we are operating in. Um, what we see from our own members is that when they predict um, orders are going to increase on that following month, they tend to find that in hindsight that that did not happen, whereas in months where they expect orders to decline, they may actually see an uptick. Um, uncertainty has become a major problem, I think, not just for forecasters, but I think even businesses alike. I mean, of course, if you weren't sure about how your businesses were going to perform over the next three months and suddenly you got a surge in orders, that's a good thing. And you can look back and think, OK, I'm glad that happened. Um, but it has become very difficult. And I guess that does raise the question is how much faith can we put on forecasters, especially if those um, predictions are actually dictating some of the decision making that we're seeing in the economy as well. I think that's um, a fair point. Can I, because I, I'll yes, flash some, uh, for viewers of the podcast, there's some newspaper headlines from today about whether we're not going to recession and how the government is going to spend its surplus before it's really got, got hold. But if the government is going to take major decisions about whether corporation tax goes up or whether super super deductions are going to be maintained based on flawed forecasting. And the forecasting was so flawed. And I, a mere small business in the Northeast, could say from my own personal experience talking to real businesses where it was. Or the Bank of England sits around in the uh, MPC and decides the interest rate based on inflation and last year gets it wrong how can people have confidence i mean i bet your forecast was more accurate because it's specialist in manufacturing but how can people have confidence in forecasters indeed that i mean our own forecast of how we expected manufacturing to perform in 2022 was pretty accurate um, mm. the industry did show a decline but that's only because in 2021 they did so well that due through the normalization of activity in 2022. But I think in forecasting still plays a pretty important role in decision making. Um, for example, understanding whether things are going to be up and down can affect businesses on how cautious they are in their decision making from investment, from the, the acquisitions that they make and productivity and digital technologies. And they may find that if you are expecting, as an example, a downturn in the economy over, let's say, the next three months, then you may play it more safe um, in, in the way you operate your business, which in hindsight, through that decision making, results in a not as bad as um, outcome as what would have initially been expected. And I think that's often what we'd like um, people to approach the, and how they use forecasts. And mm. um, we don't necessarily want that, that to be a prediction of the future. But as things stand now, if you do things as they are today and continue that into the near future, then this is the outcome we expect to happen. And as people have that idea, they can change the way they actually um, steer the ship, as you could say, to ensure that that doesn't happen. So I think there is, there's a very important role for us. <laughs> and I, I guess what, Fahin, I think that is an here. That is an enormously credible answer. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I certainly think that uh, even the small business like my own will look at the IOD forecast and so on. That's a really good answer. But unfortunately, the government has legislated to take the forecasts into account, hasn't it? It doesn't... It, it's sort of, it, 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 George Osborne, when the OBR was established, enshrined it in... You couldn't have a budget without the OBR forecast signing it off almost. He's sort of, in a way, the Chancellor now almost is beholden to the forecaster. Yeah, I think um, 
it's a it's poor decision making not to account the views of the experts um in these situations whatever the story is even if the economy is going to turn out bad i think it's important for government to communicate clearly with the public and um, what's what is the current situation whether things are going to be good whether things are going to be bad and i think that there has been a fear uh, i guess almost a fear or an anxiety from government especially because of the way uh the public has tended to react bad stories of the last couple of um years or so that they almost um try to shy away from the the negative stories i think i mean we don't necessarily go into advising on what government should do in here but from our perspective we would prefer to have that knowledge um regard whatever that may be when to to ensure that whatever decision government is making is fully costed it makes sense and is sensible which you know in the past they have shown that sometimes they don't necessarily do that well, look, Fahina, I'm going to come back to you in a minute because we've got this great uh, report, which I'll hold up for viewers of the podcast, not listeners, uh, which is your executive survey. And I want to hear more of the detail on that because you put a lot of effort into this and it really is an interesting read. So hold on. Let's turn to Fraser from Motorvise. What is your view on the economy? You're advising hundreds of motor retailers. Now, again, that's a specialist sector and they're retailing manufactured products. Fahina's team are, are manufacturing. Uh, what is your view on where the economy is? Well, the second biggest purchase anybody ever makes is a car. You know, most consumers will buy a house, they'll buy a car. Second biggest thing they'll ever spend money on. One of the things that we do, I believe in simplicity in business, and our dashboards give us a very good indication as to what's going on across the UK within the motor sector, because we're able to see from our systems that we have within dealerships exactly what's going on in terms of footfall. Now, there's been a huge detachment, uh, as I'm sure um, other people will agree, between when an order is placed and when something can be manufactured and produced, because manufacturing lead time, certainly for vehicles over the last 24 months, has become you know, much, yeah. much longer. So the length of time it takes from an, an inquiry coming through the door, which is the first indication that we have that there is a demand for something, to that order being placed, to that then being produced, uh, manufactured, delivered, which, you know, logistics have been a huge issue in the motor industry, getting vehicles from where they're made to where they, uh, the consumer is, and then ultimately getting the vehicle um, registered, which is the what the SMMT use, and then invoiced by the dealerships. So that, that, that whole thing has taken so much longer. But we can see that January was very strong in terms of inquiries. The demand for used cars is very strong. The number of inquiries coming through the door around across about a thousand dealerships in the UK, which is about 25% of the franchise dealers in the UK, we can see what's going on. And footfall and activity in January has been very, very strong. And I'm very confident we are not going into any kind of recession based on this being the second biggest transaction anybody makes and the fact that the activity is through the roof at the moment. So if you're buying a standard family car, you might have paid £300 a month mm. um, if we go back three years. And it might have gone up to around £400 a month with the impact of price rises that we mm. have seen um, and also um, the interest rate increases because most people, 90 5% of people will fund a car uh, using consumer credit of some description. However, we have just seen in January Vauxhall come into the market with 0%. The first 0% deal that I have seen since pre-pandemic. So what we are seeing now is the fact that the prices of vehicles have gone up fairly significantly over the last three years. Um, I, I, we're now starting to see 
things like the consumer incentives, like 0% finance, deposit allowances, coming back in to drive some level of competition, particularly on the less popular models and less desirable brands. But one prediction I would like to make is, um, I think there was a, a well-known consultancy firm said that the pound could be the best asset to buy over the next 12 months, is if the pound continues to rise, if it, if it rises significantly throughout this calendar year, then I would anticipate the UK car market will be significantly ahead of what the SMMT are forecasting because you'll see production that would have gone to the Eurozone being diverted into the UK and that will have a big effect because the, the motor industry is a significant portion of the UK economy um, and if we see a larger number of vehicles coming to the UK because they can make more money for them as the pound strengthens so manufacturers can get more for a car sold in the UK at a higher pound than they can across the rest of the Eurozone we could see a really significant increase on the forecast that the SMMT have put forward for the UK motor industry this year. Okay, well that's a well-educated opinion based on d live data, 1,000 dealerships? Uh, about that, yes. Very interesting, very interesting. Skylar, let's turn to you and change the subject a little. Hi, thank now, you for having me. Very good to see you. And uh, now a lot of the, uh, the discussion we've just had is about capacity in markets, about uh, people, uh, people making things and then selling them. But of course, uh, one of the biggest issues in the markets at the moment is uh, the amount of skilled labour. Now, you deal with immigration cases a lot. Um, tell us about what you see as the trends when it comes to businesses recruiting labour and the destination of, uh, from which that labour came. So the, the most typical route to recruit from overseas is the sponsor licensed skilled worker route. So to be able to employ people from abroad, you empl employers, companies need to obtain a sponsor license first. So they need to have that sponsor license in place. From there, they could issue certificates of sponsorship to the people that they identify from abroad. They are then able to apply for skilled worker visas on behalf of these individuals, and they can then come to the UK. But they have to be undertaking eligible jobs. And the issue is that there is a major labor shortage in the UK at the moment. And one of the hardest hit sectors actually is healthcare. And the UK is in need of lower skilled workers, but there are limited visa options for those individuals. So the UK is really struggling and the, the current, the, the Brits in the UK, the, the settled workers in the UK, they don't necessarily want a lot of these lower skilled jobs that are available um, and such as cleaning staff, lower skilled hospitality jobs. And so they, they need to be made eligible for visas as it could really help with the immigration issue at the moment, the, the recruitment issue, um, the labor shortage. And it, it has actually also been reported that people are viewing UK immigration that, that were viewing UK migration as a threat are now viewing it as more of an opportunity to help the UK economy. And it has also been suggested by others that the UK should have economic migration in areas where jobs are needed. But that, that could become a bit complicated to actually When you say enforce. areas, you mean sectors or geographies? Geographies. Right. So in, in UK locations that are really struggling, there have been suggested, suggestions that the UK should, um, in, should have more immigration in those um, Interesting. Locations. I mean, we're in the northeast of England. Now, the northeast of England uh, has never really, until modern, very recent times, 
had unemployment less than 10%. Now it's less than 5%. And I was on a, a major site, um, uh, our Freeport site, where they're recruit, they've got an active uh, recruitment strategy to welcome builders and construction workers back home who might have yeah. gone away from the northeast, like Alvida Zainpet, that old Geordie, uh, that old Geordie uh, drama, um, and welcome them back home and get them retrained so they can get on site to build the uh, the various factories that are being constructed here. Um, the immigration route is that too often the first route for employers? Is that uh, an easy way for employers to solve their problems rather than training? or rather than the government biting the bullet and changing the benefits system? Well, if the companies have the resources to train UK-based individuals, then they should absolutely do that. Not all companies will have those resources. Um, but in addition, training people, it does take time to do that. And so the UK jobs, they need to be filled now rather than later. Now, of course, the immigration process can also take a little bit of time. So. Either way, there is going to be time that's going to be taken for both options. Um, but then the lower skilled jobs, they don't necessarily need that much training and they are available now. And a lot of these people that are currently in the UK, the British citizens and then other UK settled individuals, they don't necessarily want these jobs. I've spoken to quite a few different companies that they have their they own cleaning companies and other lower skilled type companies and they are really struggling they, they car it's, washes for example it is an interesting point Skylar I get this I'm just going to play devil's advocate as an owner of yeah. a business I perfectly understand the point but here, here I am talking to you from the northeast of England yeah and if this is true and it is true I'm absolutely convinced you're correct isn't the right answer to put the wages up and isn't that what the workforce, if people might watch this or in the workforce, would want to be the answer? And, and to increase the GD, GDA of our, our, our areas in the, in the country, particularly in the north of England, by actually attracting people with higher wages? Or yeah. I mean, that, that's an option, but there are companies that might not necessarily be able to afford to put their wages mm. up. So in theory, that would definitely attract more people to the jobs, but the employers might not actually be able to even afford to put those wages up. Okay, let's bring in uh, Faheen as well on that, because I think you've made some very good points and analysis of where the labour market is. And Faheen, you've done this really good executive. This is a really good link, I think you'd agree. There's a lot about labour market in this survey, isn't there? Can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, I think labor and skills is perhaps one of the, the biggest issues, particularly the manufacturing sector has faced um, for decades, even even before the recent crisis. Actually, many of the um, challenges that Skylar was mentioning, actually, I was just I thought she was talking about manufacturing for one part of that mm -hmm. um, before she mentioned the healthcare sector. What we have seen in the last maybe two or three years or so is that there has been this separation of the the access to skills which is having people who can do engineering um, technical skills that sort of thing but also the access of labor which is now we define separately which is the access or number of people av available to do pretty much any job um, and what manufacturers are seeing a uh, struggle Historically, businesses did rely partially on um, European workers to, to meet the demand there, and we did see a, a decline of that um, over the last few years, not necessarily just because of Brexit, but also because many workers left from the pandemic and they did not return 
um, to, 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 to the UK because also European countries have their own labor shortages and those people did find jobs over there. Um, what we are seeing, um, particularly from, from, from the manufacturing perspective, is that businesses are really struggling. It's actually the, perhaps the second biggest cost that manufacturers are facing is labor costs. Um, manufacturers from our surveys indicate that they have been giving about average five to six percent pay rises. Uh, and it's not just the wage, uh, the way people define jobs and the quality of jobs is no longer just by wage, but also how things have changed from, let's say, working from home, which is not something you can do necessarily if you're in manufacturing, particularly if you are an on-site production staff mm-hmm. where your colleagues that work in HR and finance can go home and work from their from their houses. And so businesses are now struggling to compete, not just on salaries, but also how do they actually provide that sort of work-life balance um, that, that people are after. So... Um, it is interesting. I think it's it's the biggest issue that manufacturers face, maybe uh, perhaps outside of energy, which is the more recent issue. Um, and when we're not talking about energy, manufacturers only talk about skills and labour. And I was looking at the snapshot from your report. Manufacturing, it says, paid 12% higher wages than the rest of the economy on average. It is a high paid sector now, manufacturing. Obviously, a lot of it high skilled as well, but it's not all high skilled. I I know of a manufacturer in the northeast of England that makes um, washing machines and things. And he's quite proud of the fact that he's employing people where the skills uh, are trained in. There's a production line facility and he can bring people in, train them up on the the basics and give them a decent, rewarding job as a result. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really good point. Uh, I'm actually when I when I talked earlier about the separation of the access to skills and labor. When I'm talking about labor, I am talking about those vocational skills, like the tool makers, like the people that you described that businesses are struggling to find people at. Part of the reason is that manufacturing is a historically an older workforce. I sh- maybe perhaps not historically is the right word. Now it's currently a pretty old workforce. The average is around 52, 53, and the logistics sector also faces a similar issue there. Um, what they, What's happened since the pandemic, pandemic is that we have seen an increase in early retirement from these workers. So those people who are doing those vocational jobs, those kind of tool makers, the sheet metal workers, they have left the workforce. And there's not many people from the bottom end where the young people are actually coming in um, to replace those jobs. Um, so it has become a bigger problem because businesses are now competing to retain those older workers and it has become more difficult to do so because they are more likely to require uh, more support from a physical point of view, from a mental health point of view, mm. but also more likely to need flexible working arrangements, which has become harder to provide. We are talking to the government on this, on what we can do to maybe perhaps incentivize those people back into the workforce. It is quite difficult to do that. For example, whether or not they could come back as a um, mentoring capacity where they could actually you know, those those workers who have retired still have a lot of experience and knowledge that they could pass on to the new generation. And I think there's a huge opportunity for them to to contribute, perhaps train up those next generation uh, of workers, which is like what we'd like to see because those jobs are still needed. Fahin and Skylar, there's one other point on this. Um, there are disruptors in there uh, that are causing some of this turbulence. You mentioned healthcare. You've mentioned older people on production lines. Um, Just in most provincial towns in the north of England now, there are major Amazon distribution centres. If you want to work in a big big Amazon warehouse in our own town where this broadcast is located, Darlington, you're talking about £26,000 to £30,000 a year can be earned doing a job which uh, is not maybe as specialised as manufacturing or as 
kind and caring and uh, and specialised in its own way as healthcare. These disruptors are having an impact, aren't they, Skyler? Yeah, they could very well um, have an impact. However, there are there's a list of eligible jobs to be able to apply for a skilled worker visa, for example. And so there may be jobs in these Amazon warehouses that are eligible for people to apply for visas. Um, there's also a problem with the, the, the government is currently planning on reducing migration to the UK. And the prime minister recently announced um, that he plans to reduce migration amongst international students. So he's going to crack down on students enrolled to study so-called low quality degrees. Yes. And that is a problem because students do bring, they bring financial benefits to the UK. And then a lot of them do choose to stay in the UK after completing their studies. And the knock-on effect of this will be that there won't be th this many, many students able to stay in the UK after completing their studies because they won't be in the UK to begin with. So it, it's, it's a problem. Um, it will negatively impact universities outside the southeast of England as well. And in addition, what what how is low quality going to be decided? And at the same time, the the government is happy to fund UK students to study these low quality degrees, but then they won't allow they're going to limit the amount of foreign students that can come into the UK to study these degrees. Now, I know we're going to see problems in the future with this. I know your law practice does help employers and employees to tackle these hurdles, doesn't it? Yes, uh, we do. I, I was talking to somebody in the healthcare profession who who is saying that it can cost £9,000 per employee to go through the hurdles. Uh, hopefully you're not going to be charging that much, but nevertheless there are licences and there are costs associated with this, aren't there? Yeah, it's a very costly process. And if, if a company is a small company, they might not even be able to afford mm. to undertake this process. So they'll be really stuck. They, 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 I've spoken to many people, they don't know what to do. Um, it, it can cost thousands just to bring one person to the UK. Okay, I'm going to give uh, I'm going to last words to uh, uh, Farheen and uh, Fraser. Farheen, first of all, what did you have to think about what I said about the disruptors causing the issues like the Amazon warehouses? And, and final and final point is, what are you asking the government for in the budget? Yeah, um, so it's very interesting in terms of, I mean, we, we as you describe it, as disruptors, um, our members actually talked to us about this quite a lot, especially in the last few years when they began to compete for workers, um, particularly if you're based, let's say, near city centres around the UK. So mm -hmm. if you're based around near Cambridge, Oxford, uh, Manchester, Birmingham, you actually end up competing against financial services firms, against insurance companies, against businesses in other industries for the same jobs where, you know, a company down the road can offer uh, one a, a worker maybe a similar salary as to what you can, um, and and even if your job is higher skill and perhaps maybe a job for life in manufacturing, you're not able to compete on the short term. And as manufacturing goes through so this process of digitization, so they are adopting our automation technologies and and three D printing and all the like, we are seeing a need for um, more programming skills, more digital skills. And now what they're finding is that they are now competing with the big tech companies for those programming skills against Google, against Facebook, against Instagram and all these other companies. And so they are really finding that historically, whilst engineering was quite a niche subset of skills to a niche industry, um, where they're now finding that even in that industry, they are competing on a much global scale with other industries who like to access the same uh, type of people. Okay. And finally, Fahim, before I give the last word to Fraser, what, what are you going to, what are your yeah. brief ask of the government for the budget? Yeah. So, 
since we're talking about people and skills, um, and I think maybe even Scarlett will know this, so we are looking quite closely at something called the Shortage Occupation List, which has a list of um, job types where businesses can recruit from abroad um, under certain conditions, but more easily than than would normally like. Those skill sets are, tend to be um, focused on the higher end of, of skills, like physios like physicists and biochemists and that sort of thing we are looking for government to expand that to more vocational skills like the ones that i mentioned earlier like the tool makers like the metal sheet workers like those jobs where manufacturers actually do need people the second thing that we're looking at with government very closely and i know they're quite interested in this at the moment is how do we actually make use of those people that have retired early and left the workforce and actually can we can their knowledge because they still have those skills even if they're choosing not to use them can they bring come back how can we incentivize them to come back and, um, and and teach the next generation? Something called the Workforce Industry Exchange Program, which is essentially becoming a teacher of a kind um, where you're able to teach the young, those who are interested, those who maybe are not necessarily looking to go to university to, to pick up those skills where the older workers might have left. So those are two areas that we're looking at. And then there are others where we won't go into it today, but on energy, on trade and, and on investment as well okay. that we are speaking to government on. Thank you, Fahim. Thank you, Skylar. You've heard a lot of things there, uh, uh, Fraser. What was your take on what you've heard and what, what you think the economy will now settle down to? I, think, I don't think there's any great surprise that we are exceeding the um, predictions of The Economist because we have one of the most financially capable people running the country than we've had for a very long time. So um, you know, that gives me confidence that 2023 is going to be turned out to be a lot better um, than everybody is anticipating at this point. Um, in terms of the labour shortage, as people are perceiving it, in the industry that I'm familiar with, in the automotive sector, there's a split in the pack. There are employers that really look after their teams, that invest in training, make sure they are creative in terms of their working week, going to a four-day working week, investing in training people, growing internally people so that there's promotion opportunities, and, and have got a great culture. They're not struggling to recruit in our industry. We know that because we bring people into their businesses. There are other parts of the, the same industry um, where they are not treating their staff very well. They're not investing in their people. They don't have a good culture in their business. And as a result, we're ending up in a place where um, they're, they're really struggling to get people. So I think for those businesses that do look after their people, um, that grow people and you know have a great culture, there's not going to be a major problem with, with, with staff. The only one thing I would say is I think the education system in this country is letting people down. I don't think we're bringing people into the trades uh, and into the, the tool makers and the, the other places, that the other professions that we talked about there. But the, the trades where people would have gone through a technical college from the age of about 14, um, you know, that whole thing seems to be broken right now. Where are our plumbers and our bricklayers and our joiners of the future coming from? Because as we've said previously, I, you know, they're, they're all retiring. Mm. So I, I think there's a, a whole range of things at play, but I am very confident about the future for this year. Skylar, Fahin and Fraser, thank you for joining us. That's it for Business Unmuted this week. Catch you again next week.